Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Career Profiles is all about the Eastern assassin, Larry Holmes, one of the great heavyweights of years gone by, kindly selected by one of the listeners to the Career Profiles podcast, Martin Lee, on Twitter at Blangaz1. Thank you so much, Martin, for selecting this fighter for us to do a career profile on. We're really looking forward to breaking down the career profile of the Eastern assassin, Larry Holmes. Welcome once again, Fight Fans, to another episode of the Career Profiles Podcast, brought to you by BTR Boxing Podcast. Today's episode, then, this is all about the career of the Eastern Assassin. It's Larry Holmes, one of the great heavyweight champions of all time. Had a great career. We're really looking forward to delving in to the depths of what got him into boxing, how it all began for him, the journey inside and outside of the ring. Now, before we do that, of course, I want you guys to go and check us out on social media at career underscore profiles on Twitter and the Facebook page is BTR Boxing Podcast where you can check out this series and many other series that we run. If you've not already checked us out on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or any available podcasting app, please go and do it. Please go and find us, subscribe to us. When you've listened to an episode, please leave us a rating and a review and let us know what you think about the podcast because the ratings and reviews do truly help us get out there to all the boxing fans across the world and give them some alternative content to listen to. So without further ado then, let's bring you this episode. Myself and Johnston Brown break down the career profile of the Eastern Assassin, Larry Holmes. Larry 
Larry Holmes, the Eastern Assassin, one of the great heavyweight fighters of all time. He's a fighter that has always been due to come up for career profiles and one that was obviously suggested by one of our listeners, Martin Lee on Twitter. Thank you, Martin, again for suggesting this one. It's another great career profile to cover. Johnston, initial thoughts then before we delve into the career profile of Larry Holmes. Ah, he is, as, as you put it, he's one of the, the greatest heavyweights uh, that's ever lived. I don't think anyone can doubt it. I don't think many people gave him the respect that he deserved when he was the champion. But considering the guys he beat, the training he had in terms of sparring, which we'll get into, and you know, he's the long-lasting heavyweight. He's the one just behind Joe Lewis and uh, Vlad Klitschko. So, you know, this guy... He's one of the best heavyweights and, and, and that's ever lived, which is it's just a great pro- career profile to go through. And some of the other stuff I, I've never known, so it's been great diving into Larry Holmes when he was younger as well. Yeah, I think this is the epitome of what the Career Profiles podcast is all about, really. It's about giving you fans and you listeners a, a, an insight into what life was like outside of the ring for guys like Larry Holmes and also, obviously, what his life was like inside of the ring and some of the stories that you may or may not have heard of and, and this is what we love doing these episodes because sometimes it even brings us some new information that we've never heard about before so as we're reading it fresh off the script it's like wow you know you don't even fully understand and appreciate how great of a fighter or great of a person or a shit of a fighter or a shit of a person these people are so this is what we we will love doing about career profiles so as as always then we're going to start at the beginning we're going to start at Larry Holmes when he was born which was on November the 3rd 1949 in the small Georgia town of Cuthbert and he was the fourth out of 12 children born to John and Flossie Holmes now they lived by a railroad track in a small shack that actually sat on stilts with no plumbing and a leaky metal roof so Larry was six when oh he was only a couple of years away from having to work in the cotton fields. That was until his Uncle Willie picked him and the rest of the family up in his Chevy before heading north to Easton. Yeah, and from the family that was left of the family of 12, so there was only Larry left with his mum and his brothers Lee, Bob and Jake. So they were the last to be left to collectors and his brothers and sisters had basically already left and they had followed their father and his father had had gone off with, obviously, the brothers and sisters as, as they got older to go and find regular jobs with better pay uh, rather than working on the cotton fields, which makes perfect sense. And and Larry speaks of that, that long journey north that he made. And he, in his own words, he says, because of the excitement of being on the longest trip of my life, I slept in little catnaps, waking up whenever we got to a big city. I'd never seen tall buildings before or so many people in one place. At night, I tipped my head back in the rear window of that Chevy and watched the moon and stars. I thought the moon was following me. So obviously it was a big adventure for, for, for Larry. So you're not seeing all this stuff. It, it, was, a, it was a bit of a, a, an experience for him. And obviously that was from his book, Against All Odds, as well. So that's where that little phrase comes from. So Easton had a population of 30,000 people and it's located at the fork of the Delaware and Lehigh Rivers, 50 miles north of Pennsylvania. Now Easton was a well-established industrial city doing business in textiles, paper, leather, paint, iron and steel foundries and even machinery. But by the time Larry and the rest of his family showed up there, it was a recession going on and the Delaware Valley was still recovering from a hurricane that had done millions of dollars of damage. And on top of that, John Henry dropped a bombshell on Flossie that he had fallen in love with another woman, breaking his mother's heart. 
considering how devastated she must have been, Flossie Holmes never actually said a bad word about him. And he, she went on to say, he didn't forsake us, he just didn't have anything to give. Well, gee, that's one thing he does mention again in his book, is, it, is the fact that she did, did never knock him and she loved him. And I suppose she thought they'd get back together, which, which unfortunately never did for Flossie. But, but the family did actually end up on the south side of Easton, which was obviously known as the project. We all know what the projects were. And they survived on welfare. Now, when speaking of his mother, Larry did say, this is a, again, something from the book, is he said, she would never admit it, but I believe she treated me as a special child. Whenever I tease her about it now, she says, all of my children were special. Maybe, but I was a little bit more special to her because I was born with six fingers on each hand. So that's the tiny extra fingers were right alongside my pinky fingers and they were taken off by a doctor in Georgia when I was a baby. Now, he also goes on to say, my mother always told me those fingers were a sign from God that I must have been singled out for some special purpose. And, and his mum was a religious religious lady. And I don't think, I think Larry sort of was and wasn't. But so if anyone didn't know that, he was born with six fingers. Wow, well, I can. never knew that. <laughs> That's crazy. Crazy story. <laughs> we move on and we talk about some family tragedies now. Now, Larry did have a younger brother and it was his youngest brother, Perry, who died of a sudden heart murmur when he was only five years of age. Now, Perry's death would haunt Larry and even today, even in his book, he goes on to say, I never could figure out why if there was a God, Perry had to die for no reason whatsoever. He never did anything cruel or evil to anyone. I was mad at God about that for a long time. I still am. I feel for him. Absolutely feel oh, for him there. Awful. It's awful, isn't it? I mean, anybody that's that's suffered a loss of a young child uh, or a brother or a sister or any sibling, that's that's hard enough on its own. But then to obviously lose someone so young, it's unbelievably difficult. So, again, something I didn't really know much about Larry Holmes and about his life outside of the ring. So it kind of gives you a bit of a picture of, of the, the childhood he had and the growing up in Easton that he had. So... By the time he got to the age of 10, he began to take part in bar fights. There's not a surprise there, because you hear this about most boxers and most yeah. stories. They always end up in some type of fights as a kid. And this is no different. Larry Holmes started to take part in bar fights. A carload of kids, white, black, were rounded up every Wednesday and fought three-rounders. There was no pay, but they all got the food that they could eat. And Larry, you know, he had no schooling where he lived in Cuthbert. So when he went to Taylor Elementary School in Easton, he was too far behind the other kids to catch up, but Larry did exceed in sports, especially in wrestling and football. And by the seventh grade, he was playing at junior high level. One teacher took an instant disliking to him, and he would constantly harass and goad him in hope of a retaliation. And in the end, it was that specific teacher that was involved in getting Larry kicked out of the school. Yeah, teacher, I don't know what it was. I think he, he, he Larry said that it was to do with the fact that he was playing at junior high level when he was too young, which weird. I mean, I don't quite get that. So a girl actually stuck a pencil in, in Larry's hand. So he basically lost it. He went mad and he, and he chased her around and, and they got into a fight. That basically, that dick of the teacher, happened to be the one that broke him up and all the blame was put on Larry. So he left. Now, when the teacher did catch up with him, he actually ran off. I think he, he said, I've had enough. He ran off and he sat on his porch near his house. And obviously there was one good teacher that he always speak highly of in his book and his other prick. And basically he said, I sat on the, on the stairs of his, of his house at the time and he was 
sharpening and polishing and hunting knife. And I think the teacher sort of looked at him and said to him, what are you doing? And I think they took it as he was sharpening that knife to get this teacher. Now, in the end, they called the police. Now, the police showed up, and as a result of that, he was escorted off to a juvenile prison by police. Now, Larry did speak of his experience in juvenile prison. He said it took 13 days to sort things out, 13 days of killing time in a juvenile facility by playing cards, checkers, and ping pong. He basically had a field day. He even said he had never ate so well in his life in those 13 days. And when the prison guards did come round to drop off some food, he had loads of, I can't think what food it was, but he had loads of it. I think it was either rice or whatever. But by the time the pudding came along, he had like a couple of helpings. But when pudding came along, there was no pudding left. And then he said that um, one of the guys on in his cell said to him, no, no, you've got to get the pudding first because everyone gets the ice cream. And he actually said, Still to this day, you will find him. He's a bit partial to get a bit of ice cream before he has his mate. Which I thought was quite funny. Get your ice cream early if you end up in a juvenile penitentiary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, again, it's just stories that kind of resonate with uh, a lot of people, especially African-American people at that period of time where the, a lot of them would be targeted for no apparent reason. You, you only had to look a certain way and you'd be pulled in by the police and you know, it was no different for Larry Holm, although obviously at this point he did have a knife and he was sharpening it. It could have been perceived as maybe a little bit of a provocative situation, but still it seemed like a, an easy excuse for them to put him away. So when he got to the age of 13, he'd left school and he went to work at John DeVitrio's Jet Car Wash for a dollar an hour. By this age, he was hanging out in bars and driving back and forth to work in his own car. So at 13, he was driving in his own car. How ridiculous is that? That's kind of crazy. That's crazy yeah, exactly. <laughs> and at the time, he was quite a tall but skinny lad and he, he looked older than what he was. So, of course, because of that, he got into plenty of fights during his time at that car wash. And he actually recalls, guys were always trying me and wishing they hadn't. I used to knock out a guy every weekend. There was always somebody to challenge you. I had streaks. Once I went 40 straight weekends knocking out one badass or another. You know what? He even got fired for roughing up one of the managers, rehired, and then a pay rise of $8 an hour. (laughs) That's brilliant. Uh, yeah, he was. I think he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder, Larry. Um, and I sort of understand coming from a, a big family and just it was obviously very hard for him and having to drop out of school. But I mean, speaking of the, the, the car situation at certain, he, he actually, he, he, I think he bought a car and then he, he it broke down and he bought another car. He actually done it up himself. He's actually quite a savvy mechanic as well, Larry. And, uh, they old, 13 years old, he was kind of that car. Yeah, great story. That, uh, it was actually during this point in the early 60s that he, he got involved in the wrong crowd. So he started breaking into cars, sort of picked up stolen tape decks and radios from the cars, which he would then go on to sell for $25 a piece. So um, he did actually say he never got into anything real bad. It was always fishing stuff, but, you know, still not great. He had lost a friend, actually he lost a few people. He lost a friend who was shot dead by police. Another was killed by a drug dealer and a third had an overdose of drugs. So clearly dealing with some very unsavoury fellas. And it wasn't long until he started smoking weed and drinking. And um, all this happened, all in his teens. I mean, this guy basically lived a full life by the time he even got to 18 years old. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a lot of people that we talk about and we speak about have had some very difficult childhoods and Again, the stories are always the same, how they end up starting going down the wrong route. 
and this is this is no different really. This is what was happening to Larry at this point. But one thing that was evident about him throughout his life outside of the ring is that he always worked. He worked in a clothing factory, he worked in a fur factory, a paint factory, in a quarry, before he began driving a truck for Mort Levy's strong wear pants for three dollars fifty an hour. When Larry was sixteen he started seeing Millie Bowles, who was six years older than him. Although she didn't know it at the time, of course, because he looked older than, than what he did. And he goes on to say, It wasn't until we had our first child, Misty, in March of 1968 that she found out how old I really was. And that was <laughs> when I moved in with her. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, he loved it, didn't he? A little bit, a little bit Larry. He couldn't help himself. He loved the ladies, and uh, the ladies obviously seemed to love him as well at the time. So, the following year, 1969, in June, they had another daughter, Lisa, but sandwiched in between the birth of his daughters, he was arrested during a race riot. Many young black men were arrested and given hefty fines and sentences, but Larry actually got lucky and ended up getting off, plus his money back and a clean record, thanks to Charles Spazinia, a.k.a. Spaz, a district attorney that believed him. So he got a little bit lucky there. Some people end up getting the book thrown at him. He got 13 days in a juvenile penitentiary early on in the story, but this time he managed to get away with it. Well, as a youngster, I've always been athletic inclined. I like to play sports, all kinds of sports. But what happened was I dropped out of school in early age, and my sporting activity stopped. I had nothing else to do but box. Later on down the road, I got involved with the Olympic Committee, and I started boxing in the Olympics. I, I won four titles as an amateur, didn't make it to the 1972 Olympics, and after that, I turned professional, and here, here I am. Yeah, uh, luckily, because uh, I'm sure many of those old black men would have been arrested and probably gone down for a very long time. Um, God knows, maybe some of them ended up becoming criminals while inside, because that's what you tend to hear, hear about when you sort of hear those sort of stories. And, and yeah, I think it was to do with a race some racist white woman that, that said something inappropriate and then it all kicked off and he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time I think he bumped into one of his brothers and he's running away they just said run and he's like I'm running and he got collared so yeah that was the time unfortunately for Larry difficult difficult upbringing and so Larry did bump into a local businessman uh, in Easton and it, his name was Ernie Butler now Ernie Butler actually invited him to go to the Powell one evening which was a gym where we taught kids out the box. And obviously Larry was in bar fights, um, he's knocking guys out of the car wash. You know, he, he could he could throw a punch. The one thing he didn't have was the technique. So Larry did say, I've got into the fight game to make some money. Not to be rich, not to become a champion, but just to make some money. So that I didn't have to struggle for the rest of my life. So that was when he decided to, to walk in and, and, and into this gym and and under Butler's tutelage, he was able to find them raw talent. He always stressed the fundamentals, Butler, and he believed in repetition and building from the ground up. Now, over a nine-month period, Larry learned the importance of balance, combinations, how to slip an opponent's punch, and how to counterpunch without stepping a foot into the ring. Now, Ernie said, you're going to learn how to box before I let you in the ring. So, yeah, it he, he was interesting strategy, but it worked. It did. So, we had him shadow boxing for two months, hitting the heavy bag for the next two months, and then he progressed onto how you stand and move. Larry Holmes, as we know, is well known for having one of the best, if not the best jab in the sport. And that all started with Ernie 
I bit Larry obviously will always say that he taught himself out of job, of course, but <laughs> by the time Larry was fight ready, he was winning and the jab was a weapon. And he went on to say, my jab was fast and accurate and could hurt you. I knew how to snap the jab and turn it over. So when it landed, it moved the other guy, moved him and hurt him. For a lot of fighters, a jab is like a directional finder, something to navigate distance and distract the opponent. But mine came at you with bad intentions. I jab, and then I'd bring the right hand over the jab. Guys just couldn't deal with that. Well, it's interesting. That's the one thing when I when I discovered Larry several years ago. Everybody told me how much of a great jab he was. That's all I ever heard. And when you, when you watch his fights, it's one thing you witness. So, so delving into reading his book and and just listening to him in interviews, yeah, he was really proud of that jab. And it is and when he describes it like that, it is really uh, really fascinating stuff. And so so Larry's career began to blossom while he was working at a factory in Phillipsburg. And he he's actually earning $125 a week. Now, he had his eyes set, obviously, on the 1972 Olympics. He was beating all the guys on the circuit. So Ernie felt it was time to give Larry some real experience. So they travelled to Washington, Philadelphia, and in the famed Gleason's gym in New York, where... He would train and spar with guys like Pedro Augusto. These are some guys I'm not, I don't, I'm not familiar with, but yeah, Pedro Augusto, James J. Woody, and uh, Wendell Newton. It's, it's a name I recall, but I don't know where from. And, and they, they gave him a real insight into how far he needed to go before becoming pro. And it was around this time that Larry unfortunately lost his dad, who was actually, I believe, he worked in a farm, and he actually died, uh, John Holmes, in 1970. So, you know, a bit of sad news, but he was uh, getting some real great experience at Gleason's gym, and he did say that they did give him, well, they give him some ferocious beatings. He, he openly admitted that in his book, and a uh, good learning curve for him. It certainly was. So, by 1971, Larry won the Golden Gloves and the AAU competitions, and then one day, Ernie said to him, come on, we're going to take a ride up to Deer Lake. And Larry said, what's up there? Muhammad Ali is building a training camp. <laughs> So Ernie wow. knew Angelo Dundee and he thought he might be able to convince him to let Larry spar with Ali. But when they arrived, Dundee wasn't there. However, Gene Kilroy was. And Larry says of the moment, it turned out I was the right man in the right place. Ali had an exhibition for a charity scheduled in Reading, Pennsylvania, 30 miles down the road. When Kilroy told him I was a fighter, Ali had me raise my dukes and react to moves he made. I'm going to show you how fast I am, he told me. He held up his hands. Want to see it again, he said with an impish smile. (laughs) He hadn't moved his hands. He only pretended to, and I laughed. Okay, kid, come on with us. And it was with that, it was with that, that Ali was impressed with Larry Holmes, and he told him he was getting pretty good, and actually invited him up to Deer Lake to work with him whenever he could. Now, during the sparring session, Ali landed a good shot and gave Larry a black eye. And when he got back to Easton, he was on cloud nine. And Larry said, that was my badge of honour, my purple heart. I wasn't in a hurry to put ice on it. When folks saw the black eye and asked what happened, I told them proudly, I got it sparring Muhammad Ali. Nobody believed me. <laughs> what a story. Absolutely brilliant, that is. I can't even tell you. I mean, how great is that? This young 19-year-old going up to see Muhammad Ali building deer like after losing to Frazier in the first fight. That fight of the century. 
And uh, I mean, talk about good timing. Uh, what, what a great story that is. Excellent story. From then on, Larry would travel to Deer Lake on weekends and he would work as Ali's sparring partner for the best part of four years. And it was perfect preparation for the Olympic trials, which were coming up now. After 22 fights in the amateur ranks, winning 19, 21st bout was against a knockout artist and South, Southpaw, Nick Wells. And Nick Wells was a guy that actually had beaten him once previously before. And the semi-finals of the 1972 National Olympic Trials in Fort Worth, Texas. He was unable to deal with the southpaw stance and lost by a first-round knockout. Now, it does go down as a first-round knockout. And Larry said he quit. He said, I openly quit. I couldn't deal with the southpaw, Nick Wells, and he quit the fight. So that was how that ended. Now, that loss didn't matter too much because he was still chosen by a selection of a committee of the National Olympic Authorities to fight in, in basically the Olympic box-off in Westport, New York. Now, following the defeat of Wells, Howard Cassell told America Larry's next opponent was a guy called Dunane, Dunane Bobic. Uh, he was the best heavyweight, he said, and that Larry Holmes wasn't worth a damn. So that was Cassell's point of view of, of Larry Holmes. Obviously, probably still reading out the fact that he quit against Nick Wells. So it was in Larry's last amateur fight that he actually lost by disqualification for excessive holding after, put, after being put down in the first round. Now, although Larry was adamant that it was a slip. I remember him discussing it and sort of saying, you know, there was no way. He did the shot, didn't even land. The referee made, said it was a can. Now, it was excessive holding and that was it. So, at the age of 22, Larry ended his amateur career with a record of 19-3. and three. So, the three losses, one against Bobic, Bobic and the two against uh, Nick Wells. So, that was his, his Olympic dream shattered. And he was basically being labelled a quitter. So, many within the industry... Basically, felt he was his, his legs were too skinny, and he wasn't worth weren't worth a damn, as Cosell said, and and that was how they perceived Ali Holmes when he decided to eventually start to move into the pro rank. Well, you know, Ali gave me my inspiration. Ali gave me my inspiration, but my mom used to talk about fights like Joe Lewis and people like that. She used to hear him fight on the radio, and everybody back then, I guess, talked about Joe Lewis, and uh, but I would. I was intrigued by Muhammad Ali because he talked and talked and talked, and then he said he could do something, and he done it. He backed it up. So I was intrigued by that. <clears throat> but when he fought Sonny Liston, I was hoping Sonny Liston would be him because he would talk, talk, and talk. Well, you know, he gave me a job in 1971. He gave me a job working with him as a sparring partner and uh, let me travel with him, be, be around him, and I was able to see how he really was. And had a heart of gold, and um, uh, that, that turned me on to it, especially giving me the opportunity to say <laughs> I'm working with Ali. Even though he beat me up, I was I was happy with that because I was getting beat up by one of the great fighters. Again, it's crazy. Stories like this really don't get put into context until you you delve into them. And and this is the one where when you think of Larry Holmes's career, you don't even think about stories like this, and you don't even think that. At one point, he could have never even made it into the to the fighter and the legendary fighter that we know him as today. But at this point in time, he was he was literally on the cusp. So he turns professional by the spring of 1973. So for the time being, he kept on working with Butler, who managed to get Larry even more experienced sparring with other greats, such as Smoking Joe Frazier, Big George Foreman. But he eventually became frustrated and he felt like he'd gone as far as he could with Butler. So he changed his trainer to Richie Giacchetti. Now Larry Holmes made his debut 
in Scranton, Pennsylvania, against a four-fight veteran named Rodell Dupree, which he won by decision over four rounds, earning $63. Shortly after the Dupree fight, Larry met the man who was not only going to change his fortunes, but also ensure a roller coaster ride for much of his professional career. Of course, that man was none other <laughs> than Mr. Slippery himself, Don King. At first, King wasn't interested in Larry Holmes, but it was through persistence of one of his associates, a former fighter and would-be new trainer, Richie Giacchetti, King eventually agreed to sign Larry Holmes. And Larry was still very much a prospect by the time he had his first fight under Don King, and it was in a preliminary at Madison Square Garden in New York, winning him just $193 for a six-round points victory over Bob Bozic. That night in the Garden, September 1973, was the name thought up by Giacchetti as the Eastern Assassin and it would remain with Larry Holmes throughout his entire career. Yeah, interesting that Giacchetti was the one who, who created the Eastern Assassin. They all came in with it on their on their, sort of their tops, I'm guessing, as they do. And uh, yeah, so the Eastern Assassin was born in September 1973. And Don King was back in business, obviously, picking up Mr. Larry Holmes. And now by 1976, we're jumping on three years here. Obviously, we, we there are so many fights uh, to, we need to discuss. So we are going to skip on three years. Go and check out the career if you really want to. Um, now, Larry Holmes had a professional career of 21 wins and zero losses. But he was still the invisible man. And it wasn't until two weeks after picking up his 21st victory against Fred Askew in Landover, Maryland, that his fortunes changed. Don King called up Larry on, on the blower and he said, in eight weeks, you're going to be fighting against Roy Williams on the undercard of Muhammad Ali versus Jimmy Young. Now, it was, it was, a tu- it was, it was against a tough and durable opponent. And, and this was a, a bit of a, it's a, it's a fight that you don't really recall. I mean, I, I, Roy Williams, I don't know too much about him, but he was he was perceived as a as a tough and durable opponent, and one that uh, Larry was able to prove himself against on that night. Now, not only was he capable of mixing it with a solid fire, but he could fight for adversity. You know, in the opening rounds of the fight, Larry hit Williams on the elbow and and felt a pain shoot through his right thumb. He managed to fight on with one hand and fought well. He even showed that he had a chin because Williams connected with a huge shot in the last round, the 10th round, and New York Daily News journalist Jerry Liska wrote, Holmes frozen stiff, as if his feet were now to the floor. Fortunately for him, the bell rang and the biggest win of his career was in his pocket. So he showed really at that point that he, he had the capabilities of going somewhere in the sport, but he still wasn't convincing the boxing critters. Now, he's shown them that he couldn't be written off, but it wasn't going to be enough to to satisfy them, really, that he was going to go somewhere. Mm. So, for him, it was a decent stepping stone, and the last thing that he needed off the back of that fight was a broken thumb, of course. He was too eager to get back in the ring, and he made the silly mistake that boxers have made before him and boxers have made after him. And he started training with his cast on. And during a session, it actually came off, resulting in him breaking his thumb for a second time. And we needed to have surgery to correct it. They added two pins to the base of his thumb to hold it in place, which ended up causing a six-month layoff. So 
you've heard so many stories about how fighters have, you know, they've decided, oh, I feel like I'm getting better now, so I'm gonna gonna try and hit a bag again, or I'm gonna go and do a bit of road work again, and they end up re-injuring themselves in the in the same place. Here's another prime example from a guy that you know as a legendary fighter. Even he made mistakes like this during his early part of his career. It's almost nine months after that until Larry could make his ring return. But when he did, he did it in fashion. He picked up two straightforward wins over Thomas Prater and Horace Robinson in January and March 1977. So at this point, he's now 24-0 and he was scheduled for a bout in the semi-final of the United States Boxing Championships against Stan Ward, who was eight with no losses and two draws on his record. Now, this tournament was promoted by, of course, Mr. Slippery, Don King, and funded by ABC TV, with the Ring magazine heavily involved in the project. But it was suspended pending an investigation into bribery and corruption and outright fixes. What a surprise. It's Don King. (laughs) What a surprise there. So, following on from the farce of a tournament, which had King in the thick of the shit and all the allegations that came his way, Larry became tired of his lies and did try to get out. But he didn't want to waste months or even years in the court, so he reluctantly actually stuck it out with Don King. After another couple of routine victories over Fred Hope, a.k.a. Young Stanford, in seven rounds and Ibar Arrington in ten, he finally got his chance on March the 25th, 1978, at the Palace in Las Vegas, against one of the hardest heavyweight punchers of all time, Ernie Shavers. Well, that's what they say. They say Shavers is a puncher, Howard, but is he really a puncher? Who did he ever really knock out? Did he knock out Ryan Lowe? Did he knock out Jerry Corey? Who did he really knock out? You're being pretty uh, confident, cocky. I'm not cocky, Howard. I just like to talk the facts, you know, and I'm I'm very positive. I am confident of this fight. Shavers hasn't fought nobody like me. He fought Ali. Yes, he went 15 round with Muhammad Ali, but everyone knows Ali's not the same. Uh, I'm going to do something to Ernie Shavers today that nobody suspects me to do to him. What are you going to do? I'm going to box him, I'm going to punch him, and I'm going to beat him. I'm going to stop Ernie Shavers out. How soon? I say in between five and nine rounds, there will be no more. You got the whole thing cased in your own mind, haven't you? Yeah, I don't only have a case by myself. I got good people behind me. Richie Ducati, my manager, Charles Fazziani, and all these people. And uh, I got a lot of lot of good people behind me now. Ray Arcel and Freddie Brown, the good people, you know. And uh, these people are boxing. And with my boxing ability, I'm sure we can pull it out. Good luck, Jay. Thank you, Howard. I can use that. Yeah, and he went into that fight. Obviously, a clear underdog. Ernie Gavers was, uh, as you rightly said, a big punch. And he had just had a real tough fight with Muhammad Ali not long before it. So, King, obviously, involved, promoted both fighters. Um, now, it was rumoured that Shavers', Shavers win would have been better business for Don King. Uh, so, you can imagine what Don King was probably sticking all his eggs within the, the Shavers basket rather than sort of putting it on homes. But, you know, he did promote both. Now, Pat Putman of the Sports Illustrated writer basically said of the fight, Larry Holmes is a six is six foot three inches and, and 210 pounds. And one of those heavyweights who seemed vaguely familiar. And, and what he was alluding to was he was a bit of a copycat of Ali. And that's basically how people perceived him. He lived in the shadow of Ali most of his career, obviously being his spy mate. And that's where these 
some of these writers were always alluding to. Now, for six years, this is going back to Pat Putnam. He said for six years, he has been fighting pretty much out of sight against ridicule opponents, men going nowhere or coming back from there. But Larry's performance was anything but average against one of the biggest punches that heavyweight boxing has ever seen. Although he's here sparring, with the great Ali, he paid dividends on the night of the garden. He moved brilliantly through quick combinations, switched up the angles, and beat Shavers to the punch in every department. Even in the 12th and the last round, Larry caught Shavers with an overhand right before ripping off a nine-punch barrage. Finally, Larry Holmes, now at 28 years of age, had arrived on the heavyweight scene, and it would be the beginning of one of the longest heavyweight reigns in the history of the sport since the great Joe Lewis. Yeah, and, and on June 9th, 1978, after beating Ernie Shavers, Larry Holmes was back at the Palace against the new WBC champion, who was Ken Norton, who had been awarded the title after beating Jimmy Young in an eliminator, uh, becoming the mandatory challenger for the winner of Muhammad Ali and Leon Spinks. Now, obviously, Spinks won in a huge upset and gave Ali an immediate rematch. Now, this may sound familiar to everybody listening in. Is the WBC then stripped him of his title and awarded it to Norton. Now, this was technically his first defence. And one thing you'll notice is Ken Norton, though the champion, he fought in numerous sort of title fights and never actually won a title, although he was the champion going in, but he's handed it. Never won a title winner. So, six days before the biggest fight of Larry's life, he tore a muscle with his left arm and he was told that he needed to rest it for four months. Larry decided to go against his advice and he said, I'd been waiting too long for this chance to kiss it off just because of a little pain. You could never be sure that the opportunity would reappear. So the only option for Larry was to get therapy, to get him ready for this fight. And he believed that Norton, like Shavers, was tailor-made for him with his similar aggressive style and Larry's jab, speed and movement were the keys to victory, but as the fight went into the six, it took on a new dimension. By the end of a hard-fought 14th round, it was dead even. Now, the advice from Giacchetti in the corner was to cruise the final round and stay out of trouble in one of the best rounds of boxing ever produced. Norton rocked Holmes, knocking his mouthpiece out, but Larry found a way, and he found some strength from within, to come firing right back at all the way to the final bell, and the three judges had it 1-4-3 to 1-4-2 for Holmes, and 1-4-3, 1-4-2 for Norton, and the third had it 1-4-3 to 1-4-2 for the new WBC heavyweight champion of the world, Larry Holmes. We have a split decision. It's a split decision. One judge, 143, 142 homes. One point separating the fighters with that judge. Scores 143, 142, Norton. 143, 142, Norton. It all depends on the final judge. Scores it 143, 142. For the new, Larry Holmes has done it! Be 
would be one comparable to the thrill in Manila, one that was fought like Ali and Frazier number three. It was done this time, and I feel that I feel that Larry Holmes did his work. He did his work well. You can see it was a pick em fight. It could have been an either or all the way. Holmes came through. I'm very proud and thankful because I know that I started this kid out and brought him along, and he shows what a helping hand can do to a ghetto kid who may, who just may be going the wrong way. And if you pull him in, someone gives some consideration, some love, some compassion, and understanding, they can rise from the squalor of the ashes of the Phoenix to the heavyweight champion of the world. Yeah, really, really tough fight that one, and 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 it was voted one of the best fights. I think it was second to from the to the Thrill in Manila for the last twenty years when it was made. So this is a a really terrific fight, and they didn't like each other very much, and you could probably see that within the ring. And that last round was was brilliant. It's one of the it really is one of the best rounds of boxing ever seen. If anyone hasn't seen it, go back and have a look. Norton Larry Holmes, fifteenth round, absolute stunning fight. In, in, in its whole entirety, basically. But that 15th round was a real belt on that. From June 1978 to July 1980, over so two years, Holmes successfully defended his title seven times against worthy contenders, including the points went over Mike Weaver, who was 19 and 8. Now, Mike Weaver's a better fighter than that record suggests. In a close fight, he was put down to the canvas for the first time in his career before stopping Ernie Shavers, who was 59-7-1 in the 11th round of their rematch. And he also fought veteran Scott Ledoux, who was 26, 8, and 4. Within his personal life, he did have another daughter, Belinda, with Millie. Now, they did split up. Now, I couldn't quite figure out when they split up, but they did split up. And then in 1979, probably before he met, he probably would have met this, this particular uh, lady, uh, probably before that. But in 1979, Larry Holmes did marry Diane Robinson, with whom he would have two more children, Candy and Larry Jr., and they are still together today, apparently. So good on them. So we get to July 1980. Larry Holmes is 35 and 0, but still wasn't never considered to be the real heavyweight champion until he'd fought and beat Muhammad Ali, who was currently inactive after beating Leon Spinks in their rematch two years prior. Ali decides to come out of retirement in hope of becoming a four-time world heavyweight champion. But as the records tell us, the history shows us, and Sadly, he was he was well past his best, and he should have never ever took this particular fight. Uh, a bit for pressures from outside the ring, it, it were too strong to ignore. Muhammad Ali, as we know him, was an absolute fighter and wanted to prove the people wrong. But this was a step too far. Larry won every single round in what was a one-sided beating before Ali's corner threw in the towel after the tenth. And as a result of that, he also picked up the vacant ring and lineal heavyweight titles. Larry, you were very emotional when I got in the ring to talk to you last night. You really burst into tears. Was that a combination of satisfaction of winning or worried about what you may have done to Ali, your old friend? I think it was a combination of both, you know. I feel that when you know a man as well as I know Ali and and known him for a long length of time, I feel that you you grow to care to like a person a great deal and i felt that this is what happened to me but we always know that when we get in the ring we have to do our job we have to do what we can do best and that is the fight no matter who it is or whatever and then we our feelings can come back at the end but uh i thought the man fought a great fight and he's a one hell of an athlete one hell of a human being and i i don't have no complaints about the fight 
Larry, was there any time when you would have deliberately laid back in this fight? <laughs> well, you know, yes, I, I might as well say I did because I did. And uh, after I seen him helpless a lot of rounds, I, and no way he could win, I held back a little bit. I, I could even took him 15 rounds and, and won the decision. But um, I'm glad the referee stopped it or Angelo Dundee stopped it when he did because I think that saved him a lot of agony, a lot of wear and tear on his body and his mind, and it saved me the same. Yeah, so WBC now is he's got the vacant ring and the lineal, you know, beat Muhammad Ali. Now, as you say, Sean, 100%. Muhammad Ali had no right coming out of retirement. I could understand the pressures, even for Larry. Larry was saying at the time, if I beat Ali, don't even say I'll beat up a washed-up old man. But he needed to do it. He's to, he even said during the fight, as well as fighting Ali, you could see him. If you ever watch the fight, if you ever can stomach it, um, for, for me and yourself, Sean, as, as Ali fans, it's not one I, I particularly like to watch. But you can see numerous times where Larry sort of looks at the ref come on. And he's even talking to Ali, and he even says that Ali stands. He said he never swore or really cursed when he was with him in training camp and doing all the sparring all the time. He was running with him and all the bits he was doing when he was younger. He said he was actually really aggressive and calling him all sorts of names and swearing at him during the fight and just to just obviously piss him off and hope that he, he could land a lucky shot, I suppose. But it was a one-sided dominant display and it was after the fight. Larry gave an emotional post-fight interview with tears in his eyes. When asked why he was crying, he said that he respected Ali a whole lot and he fought one of the baddest heavyweights in the world today and you cannot take credit from him. Larry actually then visited former sparring partner and friend because they were friends in the changing room following his comprehensive victory and they, they, I think he had three million dollars and that was part of the reason why Larry said I have to take it as well so he said when he went and went to pay into the dressing room to see Ali he was sort of on the bench he was all bruised up and he was getting massaged and, and he said just said to him man you're a great man I love you man and then Ali replied well if you love me why you kick my ass?" <laughs> so, <laughs> As Larry left the room, um, he could hear Ali shouting, I'll be back. I want homes. Give me homes. I want to win the match. You know, in that typical Ali fashion. You know, so he sort of made him feel happy at the end of it that he was still uh, messing about like in true Ali fashion, basically. It was very difficult, really, for, for Larry Holmes because at this point in time, he's living under that shadow, really, of, of Muhammad Ali and people are not really giving him the, the credit he deserves as the heavyweight champion of the world. They, you know, critics, I like the critics are, even today, they'll still find a reason to slate the performance. And this is exactly what they were doing then. He was still saying things like, you know, he's just beating a washed-up old man. Well, he, he didn't have much of a choice, really. He had to take that fight with Muhammad Ali. He didn't want to take it, but he took it. And, you know, he gave him a beating. The younger man won that fight that night in... That, that's what the history books tell us. But, you know, you're considering the superiority in the ring. As I was saying, you can't escape Ali's shadow at this point. His popularity with boxing fans went even more downhill because many resented him for beating up their idol and a number still questioned his reign. After the Arthur Lee fight, Larry had a dispute with his longtime manager, Richard Giacchetti, about money, which led to Giacchetti quitting his camp now, even with the turmoil within the camp, Larry managed to outpoint Trevor Burbeck. And the Trevor Burbeck 
build-up <laughs> to the fight. I'm laughing because, obviously, we covered our the best boxing brawls episode for the main BTR Boxing Podcast feed a few months ago. And one of the interesting incidents that came up was the, the brawl outside between Larry Holmes and Trevor Burback. And there's a moment where Larry Holmes is on top of a car and he comes running along the top of a car and literally <laughs> leg, leg drops Trevor Burbeck. And it's just absolutely mental. But at this point, it's... It's where Larry Holmes, you know, he starts to turn villainous, so to speak. You know, I can only really use a, a wrestling analogy. They have sort of good guys and bad guys, and he was turning into a bad guy at this point. He was kind of living up to what people would say about him. You know, we don't like this guy. He's a bad guy. We don't like this champion. And these type of incidents outside of the ring were, were certainly going some way to, to, to living up to that reputation. So he beats Trevor Burbeck. He then knocks out Leon Spinks in three rounds and made his 11th defence of the title when he stopped undefeated Ronaldo Snipes, who was 22-0 in the 11th. It was around this time that Larry Holmes then linked up with legendary trainer Eddie Futch. Yeah, which is, I mean, obviously he had the, the, the situation with uh, his previous trainer, with Richie uh, Giacchetti. And, and the one thing with, with with that is that Don King was right in the midst of that argument between those two. And, and I'm not quite sure the ends of that. So I don't think Don King was necessarily to blame, but it, I think it was along the lines. Richie didn't want him to work with Don King. He wanted to work with other promoters and, and, and Larry stuck by Don, um, which is interesting considering what we all know about Don. But, you know, that is what he decided to do, especially after what happened with that tournament and, you know, all the shenanigans of that. He obviously, uh, he wooed Larry a little bit, like he liked Donkey used to do, and that was part of the reason why them two split up. But to get that legendary trainer and Eddie Flash is just, is, is quality. And, and so even, even to this point, I mean, the crazy thing is he's now beating Ali, he's beaten Norton, he's beaten Ernie Shavers twice, you know, he's beaten Leon, Leon Spinks. He's doing remarkably well for a guy that still people did not consider to be one of the best. They still just found chinks in his armour. And like you say, maybe it was because he had a chip on his shoulder. He was always telling people how great he was and he was the best. And, you know, no one no one on earth is better than me. I think he just rubbed people out the wrong way. People just didn't like him. So Larry Holmes defended all of his marbles against Jerry Cooney. He was 25 and 0. On June 11, 1982, and uh, Jerry Cooney was a decent fighter, but you know, he weren't, he's not a fighter that I would necessarily, I'd say he's pretty average, even in today's game. If you're stuck in, in today's era, I think most of our guys would beat up Jerry Cooney. That just he's a nice guy, but he just wasn't as good as they made out to be. And part of the reason was, he was the, the, it was the most highly anticipated fight of all time at this point. And the press were building the fight, the great white hope. And obviously the race issue was propping up in this fight. And, and Don King played into it. You know, that was part of the package. And Holmes actually dubbed Jerry Cooney the great, more like the great white dope, which I thought was quite <laughs> funny. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I sort of uh, have, to, have to agree with him. Nice guy, but again, you know, he wasn't a great fighter, in my opinion. Big puncher, but you could see him coming. In what would turn out to be Holmes' highest ever pay purse, with him and Cooney each earning a guaranteed $10 million. Now, the fight would take place at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada, and it was televised on close circuit and pay-per-view television all over the world. So, with Larry being the champion and Cooney being the challenger, there were many unusual scenarios the fact that Holmes was introduced first, even though he was the champion, and in anticipation of a Cooney victory... 
a special hotline was installed in his dressing room so he could receive a congratulatory phone call from President Ronald Reagan. No such hotline was installed in Larry Hume's dressing room. Holmes should have got the larger share for the purse after complaining to Don King. He responded by saying, This fight's just not that big. It's big. And half of something this big is better than anything else that's likely to ever come around. You've got to take it. Like Harley used to say, of all other fair-skinned fighters, Jerry Cooney had the complexion to get the connection. <laughs> Great Don King quote there. I mean, the guy, we, we know what the guy is. The guy is a slippery, slimy guy. We've said it many a times on different episodes of, of the series. But, you know, in some, he knows how to sell a fight. And we know that. We know the guy knows how to sell a fight. And in this particular incident, he was using the race card to do that. And that's what, what he puts bums on seats and puts... Money in Dunking's pocket, and that's exactly what he was going to do. So, as as we get into it, Cooney entered the ring with members of his camp wearing shirts that said, not the white man, but the right man. So, more provocative things that probably came from Dunking whispering in the ear of Jerry Cooney, but there was only one man that dished out a boxing lesson on that night, and that was Larry Holmes, who forced Cooney into the corner to stop proceedings in the 13th round. The judges' scorecards... We're just a little bit dodgy to say the least, with two scoring it the same, one one thirteen to one eleven to Holmes. But the third had it right with a more accurate score of one fifteen one oh nine. Larry actually spoke of these scorecards following the win. I've seen so much bad scoring out there, I knew what I had to do. I was prepared for anything. Larry could you capsule your thoughts about the fight? My thoughts about the fight? Yeah, quickly. I'm still the baddest heavyweight in the world, Larry. And I think you should give me my credit. Even because you don't have no cash, please give me some credit. <laughs> what were you expecting from this man realistically in the fight? You did show respect for him. Yeah, well, he, had a little, he punched a little better than I anticipated. He got a very good jab. And uh, he used it. And uh, he's, he's a good puncher. He's an all-around boxer. I think he got to develop his chin a little better. It seemed that you were giving a clinic on how to deal with his left hook. You were playing with one hand, playing with it with one hand, and then with the other. Was that your major strategy to, to fend off that left hook? I was countering it. Everything he would use with it, I would try to counter. I was blocking. I would let him throw it, and uh, he wasn't doubling up on it. So. Uh, I think I mastered everything that Jerry Coon has. I am a great boxer, Larry, and the world know it. And I love HBO, and I hope that people get the chance to watch this fight live on HBO. Here's to the American people, because y'all are the knockout. You too, Larry. Yeah, and, and I think there was even a couple of point deductions for Cooney because he was getting absolutely battered as well. So how on earth they had the one one thirteen? You think you? I think it was three points deducted, if I remember rightly. Uh, so that would have been they would have had it as a draw, which is just crazy because there was no way. Larry literally gave him that from pounding. He deserved to win the fight and he exposed Cody, really. His career didn't really take off from that point. I think he pretty much just went into an abyss. But from June 1982 to September 1983, Larry Holmes continued to dominate the heavyweight division with a a one-sided win over Randy Cobb, who was 20-2. and He won a UD against the ex-European champion Lucien Rodriguez. He was 35-7-1. He won a split decision against the future WBC and WBA heavyweight champion Tim Weatherspoon. He was undefeated in 15-0 at the time. 
And he also knocked out another undefeated fighter in Scott Frank, who was 20-0-1 in five rounds. Now, Larry then signed to fight Marvis Fraser, the son of, obviously, smoking Joe Fraser, to fight him on November 25th, 1983. Now, the WBC refused to sanction the fight against the unranked Fraser. They ordered Holmes to fight Greg Page, who was another one contender, or he'd be stripped of his title. Now, promoter Don King offered Holmes $2.55 million to fight Page, but the champion didn't think that was enough. So he was making $3.1 million to fight Frazier, and felt, but felt he should have got five for the fight against Page. So obviously some real problems with the WBC, which is nothing new. And Larry, Larry Holmes did control the fight against Marvis Frazier. From the outset, he landed a huge right-hand cross that had Frazier reeling back onto the canvas. He got back up. Holmes forced him into the corner and used him as a body punching bag. I've got this on DVD, actually, and it is an absolute pounding until Fraser's gunshot flew out, which prompted the referee to stop the fight in the first round. And the following month, they relinquished the WBC championship, but he was still regarded as the lineal champion and the ring champion. Now, on December 11, 1983, a newly formed international boxing federation extended recognition to Larry Holmes and he accepted. He was now, in 1983, the IBF, the champion of the world. So at this point, obviously the IBF, with its inception, uh, are not widely regarded as they are today. But at this point, he just lost his WBC title outside of the ring, being stripped by the WBC for not fighting Greg Page, of course, and opting to fight Marvis Fraser instead. And a difficult decision that he made there. But understandably, at that point of his career, it was about money. And I think any fighter at that point in time probably would have had a very difficult decision to make, but he felt like he wanted more money at that point. So he made that decision, and understandably so. At the end of the day, these guys have a short career span when you think about it, and taking that money was probably the right thing to do for him at the time, because then he goes on to be crowned IBF World Heavyweight Champion. So at the start of 1984, Larry Holmes decided to unify against Jerry Cotsey, the WBA champion in the summer, but it was cancelled when Caesars Palace said the promoters... JPD Inc. failed to meet the financial conditions of the contracts. Holmes was promised $13 million and Coetzee was promised $8 million. Don King then planned to promote the fight, but Holmes lost a lawsuit filed by Virginia attorney Richard Hirschfield, who said he had a contract with Holmes that gave him the right of first refusal on the Holmes curtsy bout. Holmes then decided to move on and stop James Bone Crusher Smith on a cut in the 12th round. So... At the age of 35 at this point, Larry was closing in on the undefeated record of a certain Rocky Marciano, which was at 49-0, and was only seven defensives shy of Joe Lewis's 25. And in May 1985, he knocked out David Bay, who was 14-0 in 10 rounds, and then defeated the younger and quicker Carl The Truth Williams, who was 16-0, in a disputed decision that showed chinks in the aging champion's armour. So... At this point in his career, he's 35. He's probably coming towards the back end of his career now, the latter end of his career. And he's beating guys that are still undefeated and still younger than him. But yeah, he's trying to push for as much money as he possibly can. I mean, there's $30 million put on the table there earlier that we were talking about the proposed curtsy fight. I think it's quite obvious at this point that he's struggling to sort of go between the line of 
meeting that record of Marciano and Joe Lewis, but also wanting that money as well. Yeah, I think in the back of his mind, I think at this point, he was probably, he was more interested in the money. I mean, he was always accused of, of only being interested in the business side of things, you know, but on the other side and the flip side of it, you know, the figures prove that Larry was one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. So he had to make decisions. Um, you know, obviously with, with Don King in his ear, probably didn't help as well. But no doubt he's thinking of the other side, getting to the end there. But, but at the end of the day, that his next opponent was, was Larry Holmes when he fought uh, when Larry Holmes fought Michael Spinks. Now he entered the ring against Michael Spinks on September the twenty first, nineteen eighty five, and he was forty eight and zero. He was the six to one favourite at the Riviera Hotel Casino Outdoor Arena in Las Vegas. And he was without Eddie Futch in his corner. Eddie Futch took the decision to not be in either Larry's or Michael's corner for the bout because he didn't want to give away any, or he didn't want to give any of the fighters any advantages because he both knew him so well. Obviously, he was the trainer of Michael Spinks as well. So he had the decision to make. He either chooses Larry, who's coming to the end of his career. And Larry even says that, I'm coming to the end of my career. If Eddie chooses me when I retire, which is going to be very soon, he could have Michael. So, but if he chooses Michael, he ain't coming back with me, he said. So it, it sort of made him right. I don't think he even went to the event. I think he watched it in Reno on the television as well. So sort of make him right, Eddie. I think he would have given a fight an advantage. So it was interesting, you know, having this situation where he's one fight away from equaling Rocky Martiano's 49-0 record. So following the unsavoury split between Larry and Richard Giacchetti five years earlier, his old trainer was back in his corner and in a close fight, Holmes lost for the first time in his career by a unanimous decision in what was named Upset of the Year by The Ring magazine. Now, we have done a career profile on Michael Spinks Jinx, and I think you should go and check out that episode because we do go into a little bit more detail about the way he moved up from the light heavyweight division to challenge Larry Holmes in the heavyweight division. So, back to Larry Holmes now, and after the fight, was where it got a little bit controversial, really, because he goes into the press conference and he says, I'm 35, fighting young men, and Rocky, as in Rocky Marciano, was 25, fighting old men. To be technical, Rocky couldn't carry my jockstrap. Not knowing anything about Rocky, not trying to put him down, but I would, and it's so easy for me to do it, in spite of what anybody say, I do what I want, and this is probably why I lost, because I say it like it is, and I will continue to say it, and it takes till the day I die. I'm 35 years old, fighting young men, and he would... 25 years old fighting old men. I can easily put him down. And I can even easily say his brother in the back, he fought him. I mean, if you really, really want to get technical about the whole thing, Rocky couldn't carry my jock strap. And I, I appreciate if Jerry Lister and anybody else that tried to run a computer fight to put the truth in the machine and not some fantasy thing because people want a white hope. There will never be a white champion as long as black fighters fighting the way they are. If I hurt you back there, Sonny, is your name Sonny? My name's Peter. Peter, if I hurt your feelings back there, so fucking what? Uh, it didn't go down too well. I mean, to be fair, it's just it's just something you say. I think that's what he even said. He can't carry me. People took it as, you know, he was heavily criticised for the remark and he had to later apologise, but... I don't know. It's just a. It's, I'm sure many. I've heard many of things. 
I'll fight as it said other things 10 times worse than that. Um, it's actually quite comical. And I sort of make him right in a way. I mean, when you, I mean, we ain't on Rocky Marciano's career profile. Maybe we should do one. Hopefully someone can we'll do that. But for me, when I look at his career, I, I don't think Rocky had fought the, uh, you know, the, the guys that Larry had fought. I would say Larry's resume is probably better. So I sort of understand where he's coming from. He's obviously pissed off at the situation now. Holmes also later cited the fact that he had a shoulder injury. I think he actually spoke about it. He had a, he had a chat with a doctor and the doctor said he could potentially paralyse himself and uh, all sorts. You know, this was all to do with his blow pipe performance because he just didn't throw the right hand at all. And, uh, and he did say, I was reluctant to pull the trigger with the right hand and it was because of the shoulder injury. So, make what you will out of it. I think, I think Spinks did win the first fight and obviously Larry Holmes wanted the rematch next. Of course he did. He, he demanded a rematch, in fact, and he got his chance seven months later in April of 1986. Holmes broke his right thumb in the third, so he broke that bloody thumb yet again and <laughs> he did try to go after Spinks, but eventually he set him up for a knockout in the 14th with a clean right to the forehead, but for some reason he didn't finish him off. Which was a mistake from Larry Holmes, because if he would have finished that fight, he would have recaptured the title from Michael Spinks and probably would have created a little bit more history there. But it was a mistake that resulted in his second professional loss via split decision. So it's at this point where Holmes makes the decision to retire with 48-2 and two record and in 1986. And I think, quite frankly, we, we agree that he should have left it there and he shouldn't have come back after this. But of course, like every other boxing story tells us, he did decide to make a comeback. Now, it was around summertime in 1987, Larry got to knock on the door from none other than Don King. And of course, when Don King comes a-calling, you know what he's smelling. He's smelling them dollar bills. And that is exactly why he came to the door of Larry Holmes in 1987. He said to him, want to come out of retirement? I've got a new face of the heavyweight division, and his name's Mike Tyson. So at first, of course, looking at Mike Tyson at this point, Larry's going to say, no chance, not a chance. He wasn't in the right shape to face Tyson. And Tyson's probably going to knock me out. I'm, you know, I'm, He's been retired now. Don't want to go back in the ring. But what does Don King do? He gets his dollar bills out. Starts waving him in front of Larry's face. Not literally, metaphorically. And he says, we're going to give you $3 million. And Larry's first response to that was where to assign. And <laughs> the crazy part about it is we've spoke about Don King many, many times and there's many, many stories that come up. And this is one that's very familiar to a lot of the stories we spoke about. At the time he was asked where does he where does he sign and promised him three million dollars, King also handed over two hundred thousand dollars in a suitcase of cash to seal the deal, which was probably dirty money, probably embezzled and money laundered from one of his businesses somewhere. And that just goes to show you that at this point in time, Larry Holmes is just doing it for the money. I'm ready to go in there with Mike uh, sometime in January, whatever day they want. And hopefully it's going to be on HBO because I want the world to be able to see it. And out of this fight, I hope it's such thing as fairness. Last time I didn't get it and I complained about it, the world seen it. Now I hope once they see it once more, it's fairness. I'm going to knock this guy out. What did you see in here tonight? What did you see that you feel that you can do that Tyrell Biggs didn't? Well, first of all, I'm a, I'm a boxer. My jab is stronger. I got a good right hand, and I can, I can hook it. Uh, one thing I've seen, uh, Tyson makes a lot of mistakes. And if he fights me dirty, 
that's what kind of fight is going to be all night because I didn't see a class of fight. I didn't see a, a guy that with class in there tonight. I seen a guy that throws elbows. I seen a guy that throws butts. I seen a guy that hits after the bell. I seen all of this in Mike Tyson. I didn't see a gentleman in there. If they want to make him out of a beast that he claimed to be, he's going to be in there with a beast. I'm an experienced, professional fighter. I am no kid. I do not play. So if he wants to fight any way he wants to fight, I am capable of fighting any way anybody want to fight. Absolutely. I think he said himself, you know, he was in the gym, but he was nowhere near fight ready. And it was in the summer as well of 87. I believe he sort of said, yeah, when I sign, I think he signed for it. And then it was like, it's not going to happen yet. I think Tyson had a fight coming up. And it was around sort of towards the back end of 87 when uh, he was told that you've got a fight. Uh, it's coming up when it's going to be in sort of January 88. And he was like, what? I've only got like sort of two months. So I ain't fought for two years, basically. So he wasn't by no means ready. So Holmes did about his return to the ring. Obviously, this was before people knew about the three million dollars and the two hundred thousand in the suitcase. And he said, I wanted to come back and try to prove something. And that was his that was basically how he said it against the, the formidable Mike Tyson in in these uh, in the late eighties. He, he was just a devastating fighter. And unfortunately, as we all know, his comeback did end in disaster and he was knocked out in the fourth round in January nineteen eighty eight in the convention centre in Atlantic City before he decided to retire again. This was his first straight loss and, and I, I could understand why he would do it because three million dollars, 200 grand in cash, I don't know, I think I'll probably, I, who wouldn't, you know, if he was offered that show, I think I'd step in the ring with Mike Tyson even then. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of people you say talking about, I'd, uh, I'd do three minutes with Mike Tyson for a million dollars. Uh, I think in reality, I don't think you'd, uh, I don't think you really would because as soon as your feet touch the canvas, you'd, you'd probably literally shit yourself and there's no way you'd uh, <laughs> want to be in the ring with a prime Mike Tyson. But just as another side note, a story that we have told before on the career profile of Mike Tyson is about this particular fight with Larry Holmes. So before the fight, Muhammad Ali comes into the ring and he goes to Tyson, go and get him for me, because obviously Larry Holmes, as we discussed earlier, had give out a little bit of a beating to Ali, which was him coming towards the, the end of his career. So obviously Ali seeing Tyson as the, the new great heavyweight hope in the division, the guy that was just annihilating everybody, wanted Larry Holmes to, to get his comeuppance really to he wanted revenge against Larry Holmes and that's exactly what Mike Tyson did he did go in there and destroy Larry Holmes or way past his best Larry Holmes so following that loss as you said he did retire once again but it was only to make another comeback at the age of 42 he did win six warm-up fights one of which was against the then undefeated Ray Mercer who's 18-0 in 1992 but in the summer of 92 Larry lost his fourth pro fight to a certain Evander Holyfield, who was 27-0 via a unanimous decision. So, although Larry would have been gutted by the loss, he did go on to say, in his autobiography, the 2.9 million enabled me to finish financing the five-storey glass and red brick office building at 101 Larry Holmes Drive. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we're starting to get the gist of where Larry was at at this point. You know, it's all about getting the extra extra cash uh, and, and you're talking it ain't just that you know it's not less than a million you're talking about three million for these fights and and some of the early fights where he, he was in real fights like, like the early shavers like the ken norton fights he won't get nowhere near that money really 
So it just shows, I mean, I think he got 10 million or no, $20 million for the Cody fight. So that is definitely by far his biggest payday. But yeah, definitely got to this stage, you know, in his 40s and I sort of get it. And, and he did say as well, when he mentioned that about the Tyson's going back to the Tyson fight, he reckoned he was going to try and throw the uppercut before the sort of third knockdown. And he, he reckoned as he went to throw the uppercut, he said his arm got stuck on the ropes. So that's when <laughs> Tyson caught him. So that was his excuse for that. He always has an excuse. To Larry. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, you can't knock him for it. And, and Larry Owens did continue to fight on until he met Oliver McCall, 25 and 5 in April 1995, and he lost a 12-round decision. Now, from this point, Larry basically continued to retire and attempt comebacks, including a, a ridiculous one, which was a ridiculous win over a 334-pounder called uh, Mr. Butterbean, Eric <laughs> Butterbean. Esque, I could never pronounce his that surname in, in 2002, and at the age of 52, I mean that's crazy. He did win the fight, but yeah, it was it was an absolute sham of a fight, really. But thankfully, from that fight, Larry to really call it a day, and he hung up his gloves finally. Um, but you know, you can't. Again, we're talking. It was it was a good few million, and and he sort of he sort of fought on for these comebacks. Some of the younger guys, I think it was like a midweek night fights and he fought regularly against the up-and-comers he was just like a benchmark for him going into his 40s and 50s so yeah a bit of a sad ending as always with all these terrific fighters that we do career profiles of boxing it made me it changed my whole world around i wouldn't be here if it went for boxing you know i wouldn't have been able to afford it i never thought i would have been been on the airplane and look here here i am you know a beautiful family you know we travel we're not begging for anything and um, boxing, if it wasn't for boxing, I don't know what I'd have done with a seventh grade education. But one thing about that, I got a PhD in common sense. I'm just a regular guy. I'm, I'm, I'm just me. I, you know, my wife's been married. We've been married 33 years, and we have fun. And I think I'm, I've been pretty good, you know. I mean, most athletes get married 33 minutes, you know what I mean? <clears throat> and I've been married 33 years, you know, so... So, we, you know, I'm okay. I, I, I just want people to remember that I've done what I had to do, and I've done it fair. And when I tell somebody, give somebody advice, it's real. It ain't, no, it ain't no joke. It ain't me trying to blow your mind up. I tell you the jab, a right hand, or whatever level, that's what I mean, I, how you do it. I, I ain't going to tell you what I think I know. I'm going to tell you what I know. Yeah, and I think we've got to sort of go back to accomplishments really here. And, and something that's not really spoken about is actual accomplishments achieved by Larry Holmes. I think we've we've gone through a story here where you, you're speaking about a guy who's come from a difficult upbringing like many of these fighters do and goes through a career in, in his sense, not really being loved by people, not really being loved by the public, having difficulties sort of inside and outside of the ring and getting into obviously all these brawls that we spoke about earlier on and just eventually becoming a little bit of a villain at times and it became to me, more about the money as as the 80s went on, but nobody could really deny what his achievements were. So he held the WBC heavyweight title from 1978 to 1983, the Ring Magazine and Lineal heavyweight titles from 1980 to 1985, and the inaugural IBF heavyweight title from 1983 to 1985. He made 20 successful title defences, placing him third all time behind only Joe Lewis at 25 and Vladimir Klitschko at 22 title defences. 
and he also holds the record for the longest individual heavyweight title streak in modern boxing history. And another little fact about it is Holmes is actually only one of five boxers, along with Joe Frazier, Ken Norton, Leon Spinks and Trevor Burbeck, to defeat Muhammad Ali. And he's the only one to have ever stopped the great Muhammad Ali. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, that's one thing. I mean, I don't know he was way past his best style and should never have taken that fight, but he could sort of get, it goes down on the record books, he's beating him, he has it. You look at his resume and the guys he's beat, like the Ernie Shavers, you know, even Mark Weaver, and you just suppose you could put a Burbick in there as well, Ali, uh, Leon Spinks, and he, Jerry Cooney, you know, Tim Weatherspoon. It, 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 it's an endless list, really. And, and But, I mean, the one thing for me with Larry, looking into this, into his career is, it sort of in this time, sort of Larry. I think during his his fight career, he was never really recognised for the, being a, an accomplished heavyweight. But he is now sort of regarded as one of the greats, which is good to see. And he was a fighter with power, packed in both fists, and he had the added bonus of that lethal left jab, which helped him to establish that reputation with, with that devastating left jab. And you know, seventy five fights, sixty nine wins, forty four knockouts. His title fights. Well, he had several, uh, as, as, as you just spoke about, and, and you can't knock him. You really can't. I mean, I would, would you put him in your top 10 greatest ever heavyweight? I mean, he could probably sneak in there. I think for him, the biggest problem was, was, was the fact that although he did fight through the 70s and fought like the Ken Norton's, people like that, he, and he fought Arley, it was the back end of their careers. They were never major names. If, if it had come 10 years before that and fought a prime Smokey Joe and a Foreman. I mean, he, he sparred all these guys. He felt like he had the better of them. He felt like he was quicker than Ali. He said so. Would he have beaten him? I mean, he probably would do it. he could have won one, could have won some. But I suppose he had that style, didn't he? He probably could have beaten someone like a, a, a Foreman or even a, a, a Frazier. Who knows? I mean, you can't say that he isn't one of the all-time greats. It is very difficult, and I think the general consensus about Larry Holmes is that he he was in an era of time where the heavyweight division was going through a, a difficult transitional period and he was really the guiding light of the heavyweight division during that period of time. As you rightly pointed out, he picked up guys like Muhammad Ali at the end of his career, Ken Norton at the end of his career, Ernie Shavers at the end of his career. If he would have been born 10 years earlier, he would have been in that golden era of the heavyweights in the 70s and we would have seen more competitive fights and he could only beat what was put in front of him. Then he moved into the 1980s where the early 80s really for the heavyweight division wasn't that great and a lot of people will agree and attest to that. So he had a great difficulty and then when new heavyweights came along, he's at the back end of his career. So he's yeah. older than all these guys. The likes of Michael Spence moving up to heavyweight. The likes of Mike Tyson, obviously, in his heavyweight prime. He was literally stuck in the middle of two eras of time where he could only really beat what was put in front of him. But you rightly pointed out that some of the victories over some of the names who went on to become world champions after they fought Larry Holmes or were former world champions when they fought Larry Holmes, you cannot deny absolutely that he deserves his place in boxing history as as a legendary heavyweight fighter. So for that, he does make it into, into my top 10 as one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. And he has to for many people because of what he achieved in the sport 
and what he brought to the heavyweight division in such a difficult era. So for me, Larry Holmes, yes, he is a legendary fighter in the heavyweight division and it's been a absolute pleasure to, to delve into his life more so than his career. I think knowing a little bit more about his upbringing and know some of the stories and some of the difficulties he got into as a kid kind of made me have this newfound respect for him as not just a fighter but as a man. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think uh, that is just the one thing you will say is, you know, he always, he did have a chip on his shoulder. He was a bit mouthy at times, but he had to blow his own trumpet because no one else was going to do it for him. And, and to come through, you know, not, not getting to the 72 Olympics was obviously a, a real devastating, devastated for that. But, you know, I, I, it was great to see a guy that inspired with some of the legends of the sport. And they, they've moulded him in a way into this fab fabulous fight so I mean we say if he did if he hadn't been born 10 years earlier he wouldn't have had that that vital experience against some of the, the, the best so maybe he wouldn't have been as good as he ended up becoming and yeah it's interesting I mean the one I did find one quote as well which I thought was quite funny is he said it's hard being black you ever been black I was black once when I was poor <laughs> 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 really funny little quote he, he sort of mentioned and yeah I think that was that sort of puts you in a nutshell really when he got that money uh, it was all about the money and he was a business minded fighter yeah, and he, if I'm going to sort of put him alongside anyone I would say someone like Lennox Lewis because he wasn't really recognised in his time it wasn't until after we really now we really recognised Lennox Lewis as an excellent fighter and I think Larry Hunt sort of falls into that bracket and I think that would have been an interesting fight two very similar fights Again, I'm with you, Sean. Just, just digging into some of the old the stuff of when he was younger has been fascinating. And I, I actually have to say, I've, I've become a, a bit more of a fan than I was previously of Larry Owens. So, of course, if you've enjoyed listening to this career profile of the Eastern Assassin Larry Holmes, then please go and let us know on Twitter at career underscore profiles. Let us know what you think about the episode, your thoughts, where you would rate Larry Holmes in a top 10, if you would even put him in the top 10. If you've got Facebook, check us out on the Facebook page for BTR Boxing Podcast, where all the latest episodes from all the series are on there. If you've not already subscribed to Career Profiles Podcast, you can do so by checking it out on all available podcasting apps out there. If you're on Apple, please leave us a rating and leave us a review about the Career Profiles Podcast. It truly helps us, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Career Profiles with Larry Holmes. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.